0: welcome you again to the live stream of Grace Church of Philly thank you for joining us and uh, as you we long for that day when we will gather again in corporate worship on the Lord's Day as God has called us to do and hopefully that will not be too long Uh, you should know that the elders are praying planning consulting About when to do that, and uh, we will keep you informed as those plans become more clear and more solidified. But uh, we are longing for that day when all of God's people can gather on the Lord's day. Take your Bible with me once again and look in Philippians chapter 1, looking again at verses 12 through 26 this morning looking at the second half of that passage but i will read the entire passage philippians chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and in all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill And I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am here to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between my own desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the sequel to last week's message, on how God turns our calamity into gospel opportunity. I remind you that this is one of the four prison epistles written by Paul as he awaits trial before Caesar. He was falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned, falsely accused of causing riots among the Jews and of profaning the temple. And yet Paul is confident that His imprisonment, his difficult time, his calamity, is by the will of God. Paul's imprisonment was seen by some as a triumph of the enemies of the gospel. Some saw it as an end to Paul's great evangelistic and church planting ministry. And others saw it as a personal defeat for Paul. But Paul puts it this way. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel of Christ. And as you read on in Philippians, you understand that Paul is so caught up with being in Christ and being like Christ that in chapter 2, he indicates that, that his willingness to suffer for the gospel is following the self-denying, self-sacrificing example of Christ for the good of others. In chapter 3, he will tell us that he's willing to suffer the loss of all things that he might gain more of Christ, that he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And in chapter 4, he will tell us that he has learned in every situation, including being in prison, that he has learned to be content because he can do all things through Christ who constantly strengthens him. He is caught up with being in Christ and living for Christ. We saw last week that we need to believe that God is at work in our calamity, in every calamity that touches our life, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, all things come to us not by chance, but by His Fatherly hand. I love that phrase. Our good, good Father controls all calamities. He uses all calamities to accomplish His purpose in our lives, transforming us into the image of Christ, uh, making us more useful in the advancement of the gospel, and ultimately so that we can bring glory to God in everything that is touching our life. You and I may ask from time to time, how will we survive this pandemic? Last week, the answer to that, Paul's answer to that was, we must continue to believe that God is in control. If you don't believe that, then you're headed for despair. But if you do believe that, then you will see the useful, eternal purposes of God in what's touching your life. But today his answer to that is this. How do we survive this calamity, this pandemic that is touching our lives? Paul would say we must choose to rely on Christ. We must live in Christ, trust in Christ, rest in Christ, delight in Christ, treasure Christ as our all. We must rely on Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? Our text suggests a number of answers to that question. How do we rely on Christ? First of all, we rely on Christ By maintaining confidence in his saving power. I love the song we just sang. He is mighty to save. He can move the mountains. Or he can leave them in place and give us strength to endure all of the obstacles that we face in life. But he is mighty to save. If we take verse 12 where Paul says that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, along with what he says in verse 19, where he says that this will turn out for my deliverance. We can sort of put them together and say this. Paul is saying what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. If you're using an older translation of the English Bible, You will note that the word deliverance there is probably the word salvation. The Greek word sotegria, salvation, which Paul uses a number of times in the book of Philippians and actually uses it in different ways in the book of Philippians. Because the word for salvation simply means deliverance, sometimes as frequently in the Gospels Deliverance. Salvation is being healed from a disease. You've been delivered from the power of sickness. Sometimes and perhaps most often we think of it this way, that salvation is the deliverance from sin. Both its penalty, we're delivered from a final hell, and both from its power. We are saved from the power of sin. We experience sanctification. And sometimes the word is used to be saved or delivered, to be rescued from a particular difficult situation. We know the psalmist prayed for God's salvation many times in delivering Him from uh, difficult situations. And perhaps here in verse 19, that's ultimately how we would understand it. How Paul understood it when he wrote it is another question. When Paul says that this will turn out for my salvation, I believe he knew that God's saving of him could be accomplished in many ways. It could be, as ultimately it was, by delivering him from that imprisonment so that he could continue ministry a little while longer. But Paul also knew that God's deliverance, God's saving him, could have been God's empowerment of him in the midst of that difficulty, giving him such strength as he did in other times to sing praises to God. Or it could have meant... And certainly, this was in Paul's uh, thinking, possibilities of what God, how God would save him. It could have meant that God would have delivered him by death, that he would have saved him from this world and from his calamity by bringing him into the presence of God. God's deliverance of his people in the midst of trial sometimes is more what we desire and sometimes it's more obvious, like the time when God opened the gates of the prison in Philippi and literally let Paul and Silas go free. They were saved. They were delivered from that prison cell. But most often, God's ways of saving us aren't necessarily by delivering us out of the calamity, but by sustaining us in that calamity. And it is still the mighty power of God. It is still this mighty God who saves us. If you're ill, God may deliver you. He may save you by healing your illness. Or He may deliver you. He may save you by giving you extra grace to rejoice and be sustained in your illness. Or He may deliver you by saying you're done with this world, come into my presence where sickness, where viruses will never touch you again. It's up to God's sovereign will as to how He chooses to deliver us. We do not dictate to God how God displays his saving power. We simply remain confident that if we are in Christ, if God is our God, then he will save his people. He always saves his people. He will always deliver his people whom He has ransomed through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is mighty to save. This is, as we sing, this is our God, the one who saves. We rely on Christ by maintaining confidence in His saving power without dictating how God exercises His saving power. But secondly, we rely on Christ by depending on the prayers of the saints. Again, verse 19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers this will turn out to my salvation, my deliverance. That God in His providence, in His design, for his kingdom, for his people, that God will use your prayers to accomplish his saving power in my life. Now earlier in this chapter, we know that Paul prayed for the Philippians. In most of his epistles, he lets God's people know that He's busy praying for them, that that he believes that there's a connection between his prayer and God's work in their lives. He prayed for them that they would grow in love, a a discerning love and a wise love. He prayed for them that, that they would be able to choose the things in life that really matter. And he prayed this for them because he knew that they were in Christ and that they were filled with the fruits of righteousness, of being in Christ, and that he could depend on God to answer his prayers. Later in chapter four, he will remind the Philippians that as they pray, they should pray without anxiety and that all of their supplications that they make to God, and that's the same word he uses here in Philippians 1, all of their specific requests they make in behalf of others, that they should do it with thanksgiving, believing that God is always acting for good in the behalf of His people. It is often that God chooses to display His saving power in response to the prayers of God's people. Now, don't be mistaken, God is not dependent upon our our prayers, our intercession for others. But He simply has chosen that our intercession is a means by which He will often display His power. I know someone might say, and maybe rightfully so, well. I can go directly to God myself to deliver me. I don't need the prayer of others. I can pray. Well the first part of that is true. God can deliver you in answer to your own personal prayer. But the second part of that is not true. I don't need the prayer of others because God has created His new covenant community as an interdependent community, as a body of interrelated parts who depend on one another. When I say to you, I need your prayers, then that is an act of humility. It's an act of humility in which I accept God's design to live in community with other believers. It's, a, it's an act of humility where I accept that God intends that we should mutually bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I need your prayers. And when I say, I will pray for you, that is an act of love. It's an act of love, believing that God is uniquely brought, believing, baptized people together in community to worship, to fellowship, to do His work together. It's an act of love that I accept my responsibility to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul did not underestimate the power of intercessory prayer. He prayed for others. He depended upon the prayers of others in his behalf. I was encouraged recently and somewhat convicted when one of our elders, on our Wednesday night sermon discussion, talked about how praying for others had become more meaningful to him during this time, that, if I remember his sentiment correctly, that it had become much more of a joy to pray for others than a burden. And I know what he was talking about because I have my obligatory prayer lists that I go over. And sometimes it is more of an obligation than it is a joy. But to hear him say, I've grown in this, that it has become much more of a joy that we begin to understand that God often displays his saving power through the prayer of others in our lives. We, we rely on Christ by depending on, on the prayers of the saints. And thirdly, also in verse 19, we rely on Christ by depending on the provision of the Holy Spirit. He says, for I know that through the help of the Holy Spirit, through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance the word help is an unusual word in the Greek it actually finds its roots in the theater, the Greek theater the Greek drama because the ancient theaters would be supported they would be kept alive by generous benefactors, by generous philanthropists who had enough to supply the theater so that it could function to do what what it was called to do. And Paul lifts that word and uses it here and he says the Spirit of God is my benefactor. The Spirit of God is the one who has all of the resources to generously provide for me, to endow me with all I need for life, to sustain me in His abundant and sufficient resources in this imprisonment. I depend upon the provision of God's Spirit in my life. As he had written earlier, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified together. And he prayed from that same prison cell for the Ephesian church. He said, I pray that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner man. I want you, Ephesians, to know the work of God's Holy Spirit in your life, strengthening you and sustaining you through all of the trials and difficulties of life. Paul makes it clear that he believed in the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Perhaps he still has ringing in his ears those words of Jesus Christ in John 14 through 16 when he promised that when I go, I will send another one, that comforter, that one who will be alongside of you, that one who is with you now, but the one who will be in you at that time. It is the spirit of Jesus Christ, the same spirit that raised him from the dead. The same spirit that empowered him through all of his daily ministry while on earth. The same spirit whom he gave on Pentecost. That same spirit who baptizes every believer into union with Jesus Christ at their time of conversion. This spirit, Paul says, I'm confident, I know that through this generous support of the Spirit of God, I will experience God's saving power. Paul was convinced that because of what God had done for him in Christ, that because God had loved him so much that he gave his own son to die the death that he deserved, That because God loved him so much and gave him so much in Christ that he wasn't done giving to him. That there was more that he wanted to give to him in Christ and through Christ. He put it this way in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things God will save me through the generous work of the Spirit of God in my life. So when I read these first couple of points, I need to ask myself, you know, where am I turning during this time of crisis and calamity? Am I turning more to pray for others? and to cry out for the prayer of others? Am I learning to walk in the spirit, and live in the spirit, and depend upon the spirit? Am I learning to realize as I prayed at the beginning that that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, it's not what we experience in temporal ways, but the kingdom of God, the real life that we enjoy, is life and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us to take what is ours in the future, to take all of that inheritance that Jesus Christ has reserved for us, and by His Spirit, He brings it right now into this time and place And he gives me an earnest, a down payment of that. A taste of the world to come. And that is what sustains us in a world that is passing away. We rely on Christ, fourthly, by seeing the supreme value of union with Jesus Christ. These are some of my favorite verses in all of scripture, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is given. You can't read Philippians without concluding that Paul was consumed with Jesus Christ as his deepest delight and his greatest treasure. And he was so captured by it that the thought of ever denying him, the thought of being ashamed of him, the thought of being in a place in life that was so difficult that he would not be able to give glory to Jesus Christ. He says, it's my eager expectation. He says, my, my neck is stretched. My eyes are reaching forward. My hands are reaching forward. This is my hope. I am longing. I'm giving my all for this one thing. I don't want to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. saw something in Christ and experienced something in Christ that captured his affection his being in such a way that he longed for a life that would never deny Christ. I don't want to be ashamed of this one who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul sought the glory of Christ in all things. His passion to glorify Christ is seen in this statement, in my body, whether by life or by death. All I care about is not life or death. What I care about is the glory of the one who gave his life for me. I can remember a few years back, I think it's probably close to five years now, when I would visit both Jose Jose De Husseys and uh, Gary Travis at Jefferson Hospital. And I must say that I always, I can't ever remember coming away feeling sorry for Jose and Gary. Feeling discouraged that they were so overwhelmed by their calamity. I mean, I can still hear Jose saying, What can I do? If the Lord wants me, I'm ready. I've listened to his wonderful testimony of God's saving grace in his life so many times. Of The great pastoral influence that Rolando has had and continues to have on him. And the joy that he has, the joy of just knowing he is forgiven. He has eternal life. He doesn't deserve it. And if he dies, I'm ready for God to take me. No, Gary, confess the same. They both experienced God's powerful saving grace that created in them a deep conviction that what matters most is not me, my life, my death, my struggle, my problems. What matters most is not my multiple health issues. What matters most that Jesus Christ my Savior would be glorified. Amen. Because Paul knew that in Christ he could never lose what is most valuable. For me to live is Christ. If I'm here on planet earth My life is Christ. I'm a Christian father. I'm a Christian grandfather. I'm a Christian husband. I'm a Christian pastor. I'm a Christian neighbor. I'm in Christ. And that affects and influences everything because his life is in me, as he says in Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Life is Christ, but what if you die, Paul? You, you lose all of this life. Now my life is Christ, and if I die, I gain. I see Jesus. I'm with Jesus eternally. This pandemic does not teach us anything else. It should show us the riches that we have in Christ, the unchanging, unsearchable riches we have in Christ. And one last point, verses 22 to 26, we rely on Christ, and as we do that, we continue the priority of serving others. There's not much self-interest in Paul. He wants the glory of Christ. He wants the good of others. Look at his choices. For him, death would mean being with Christ, the end of suffering for for the gospel, and also the end of ministering the gospel. For him, life means that he will continue to suffer in the midst of a fallen world. But he will continue to work in the lives of believers and non-believers so that they can know the glory of Christ. He says, I prefer, it's better, I prefer to be with Jesus. Who wouldn't in their right mind? But he says, it's more necessary for me. If it's only about me, then God, take me out of this sin-cursed world and give me eternal relief from suffering and sin. But it's not only about me. Paul says, as much as I want to be with Christ, it's more needful for me to stay here and continue to bear fruit among you so that you can glorify Jesus Christ. That poses a good question. We all ask, we all need to think about, why do I want to live? Why do I wanna keep on living? And from a human perspective, I can answer that many ways. I wanna live because I love my wife, my best friend. I'm gonna spend time with her. I'm I'm not tired of that yet. I want to see my three sons and my two daughters thrive in life and in their families. I want to watch my 12 grandkids grow up and, and, and come to know the Lord and get married and, and, and have great grandkids. I've got five brothers still living and a sister who's still alive. I want to get to know them better and see God's word continue in their lives. There are places I'd like to see, places I'd like to go. They're all good things. But why do you want to keep on living? For Paul, he says, because I want to glorify Christ. And I want to have a fruitful ministry among you Philippians. God's not done with you yet, and I feel that there's still something that God can do in using me to draw you closer to Christ. The world is still lost. It needs the gospel, and yes, even my imprisonment has turned out for the advance of the gospel. Why do I want to live? Many good reasons, but the ultimate reason, the unchanging reason should be I want to live for Jesus Christ. C.T. Studd was the great, dedicated missionary to China, India, Africa. And in 1883, as he wrote from Cambridge, he said this, he said, I had known about Jesus dying for me, but I'd never understood that if he had died for me, then I'd have belonged to myself. Redemption means buying back so that if I belonged to him, either I had to be a thief and keep what wasn't mine, or else I had to give up everything to God. And when I came to see that Jesus had died for me, it didn't seem hard to give it all up for him. Later, he said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. On March the 19th, 1872, the great missionary, explorer, philanthropist David Livingston. On his 59th birthday, wrote these words: "My Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again dedicate my whole life to You." A year later, he was found dead. He was on his knees by his bedside with a candle burning, his Bible open, but he was in the presence of the king. My Jesus, my king, my life, my all. Can we say this this morning? I again dedicate my whole self to you. Let's pray together, shall we? Before you will ever live for Christ in your calamity or in your lack of suffering, before you will ever live for Christ, you must first receive his gracious offer in which he wants to give you the undeserved gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, suffered and died on the cross for your sins and mine. He satisfied the demands of his Holy Father that all who sin should be punished eternally, and Jesus took that punishment. Three days later, he arose from the dead, and today he is alive. He's alive to give eternal life to all who will repent of their sin and rebellion. He's alive to save his people, to give them grace and strength in their life. Come to him today. Father, help some this morning to confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. May they cry out, Father, save me from sin's penalty and sin's power and ultimately from sin's presence in my life. And then, Father, save me, show your saving power in my life day by day as I look to you in faith. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is mighty to save. Thank you that we can do all things through Christ who constantly strengthens us. Bring some to faith this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.